Good morning. Will everyone please uh, stand and join me as we read um, James 3. And this is the word of God. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire entire body as well. Now if we put... Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 29 and 30 this morning. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Do you weigh what you say? Conventional wisdom says to us, and you've probably been told this, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. Well, one problem with that is what does nice mean? And another little easy to remember thing is the word nice is not precise. So we... As I always uh, encourage and we encourage here is that try to use biblical terms and that something like unkind, you know, instead of saying that's not nice, say that's not unkind or it's not kind. That is much more profitable. Uh, So besides the lack of precision in the word nice, does the idea of nice prohibit rebuke and correction? 
And for some people it does. And so you'll, you'll hear folks today saying, well, you, we just need to be nicer. And what they mean by that is that you should never say anything that I might find offensive. You, you should never say anything that hurts my feelings. And so they want to prevent you from issuing a, a rebuke or correction if it's needed. Now, yes, there's a sense in which it's better to say nothing if you're only going to say something harmful. So it's better not to say anything at all. But that really doesn't go far enough for the believer in Jesus Christ. The one who has been redeemed and is being transformed, that doesn't go far enough. So it's not okay. We That shouldn't be a principle for us that if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. We need to have a lot more uh, as far as biblical standards go, to help us, get, to guide us in this. We saw back in, cha- in verse 25 of chapter 4 that our speech must be truthful. And just like in Philippians 4, 20, or 4.18, uh, truth is the first thing. It has to be true before you think on it. Well, here when we're talking about what you say, not just what you think, but there are, there are more guidelines there. Besides just the fact that it's true. Sometimes something is true, but you shouldn't say it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Not only should our speech be truthful, it must also be helpful. God wants us to learn to practice speech that follows biblical standards. See, on the one hand, the character of our speech reveals our hearts. It opens our heart up to people. If you want to be able to look into their heart, uh, just listen to them. When they open their mouth, they're opening their heart. We're going to see, and Jesus is going to use a similar metaphor. Uh, Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones explained that, "...in this world there is nothing which is of greater importance than the power of speech, because..." After all, we express what we really are by what we say. You see, so in other words, as Jesus would, Jesus would say, that you're, you're exposing your heart by the things you say. And Lloyd-Jones there bringing that out here. So, in our passage this morning, Ephesians four twenty nine and 30, Paul shows believers how they ought to verbally interact with one another, the kind of character that should govern how we interact with each other. And so, our main point is this. Replace worthless words with those that build up others to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. Replace worthless words. And you can see the the put-off, put-on there, right? So, you have to... Replacing, you get rid of the one, put off, and then put something in its place. Replace worthless words with those that build up, that build up others. Why? To avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. When I used to go shrimping with my dad in Louisiana, we did that a lot. And and that was... When you're a kid, it was a blast. As you got older, it just became work. But uh, when you're a kid, the fun, fun part about it is, yeah, you were doing some work, but when we would pull in the, the huge net called a trawl, uh, it would be, hopefully, full of shrimp. And sometimes it was, sometimes not. But uh, usually, there would be all sorts of fish, you know, types of fish in there, and, and other swimming creatures. And so, 
what we would do is we would cull through it and we'd keep all the shrimp and and then we would toss the fish back because those fish weren't the ones that we would want to eat. And so to us, they were worthless for eating. They were not fit for eating. It, things like ribbon fish and others. It was really cool stuff. And so it was a blast to see, you know, the, the wealth of, of kinds of creatures under the water there. But <clears throat> they were not fit for eating, at least not for humans. In God's design, they had other purposes, like providing a tasty meal for the gulls that would would fly and circle above us. And, and whenever the boat would stop after pulling the trawl around for about an hour, they knew that this was, you know, smorgasbord. So, you know, they would come and they would just hover over the boat and sw- swarm around. And, and, of course, you know, the kids, we would, we would throw those fish that we're throwing back up in the air and watch the gulls catch them. And so uh, that was a blast. But that's the idea here. <clears throat> While to those birds, the, the, the fish weren't worthless, to us they were. They were not fit for human consumption. And that's the idea that Paul is going to have here just a little bit. Words, too, can be worthless. So look at verse 29 with me here in Ephesians 4. And remember, we're in this section where we have these put-off, put-on pairs, and we come to a new pair. Verse 29, first the put-off. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, as we break this down and unpack this, first we say this, restrain harmful and unproductive speech. Restrain harmful and unproductive speech. Paul prohibits us from uttering what he calls unwholesome words. Something was unwholesome. This has a lot of range to it, this word. It could describe things that are rotten, foul, putrid. I think here, rotten wood, decaying fish. It could also refer to something that was worn out. And think here, it would use this of withered flowers. Um, useless, things that are useless, things that are worthless. And so, like with my shrimping illustration, Jesus used this word when he was talking about in Matthew 13, how fishermen, and of course, you know, we read the Gospels and there's a lot of uh, scenes with fishermen in there. And, and so this was something they were very familiar with. And so when they would pull in their net and they would go through and they'd, they'd call through the fish. And Jesus talked about, you know, they would get rid of the ones that were worthless. Okay. That doesn't mean that they were somehow, you know, evil necessarily. They just weren't good for human consumption. And that's all he means by that. But he's, you know, using that as an illustration for another point. But still the idea is it helps us understand what worthless can mean. And so it can be things that are harmful, but also of no use for the the situation, if you will. So the kinds of words that we're to restrain, they range from harmful words to those that are worthless. Hurtful words can, can be like dishonest, unkind, vulgar, corrupting words, uh, words that tear people down. Uh, it'll, it includes filthy talk, but Paul's going to get to that later in chapter 5, so we'll, we'll comment more on that then. You see, sometimes it's this, the same word. It, it's not that, okay, let's go through the dictionary and mark the words we may never say. That, that's not the point. 
because the same word can be used for in the right situation for good. So the same word might be a word of correction in one situation, whereas in another situation it is just tearing down. Okay, and so we have to think about what our words are doing, or think about you know you you you're at home getting ready for church, and you know you're. Your wife or daughter is is stressing out over, you know, how they look. And I'm not being sexist because uh, most of us guys really don't care. You know, and it shows, I know. All right. But what do you, but then you see that and you offer a word of encouragement. Say, you really look nice. Okay, well, that helps, right? But when you come to church, then maybe you say that to someone because you're trying to flatter them. You know, maybe you're trying to manipulate them to, uh, you know, to like you or something like that. So, you see, the same kinds of words can be useful in one situation and not useful or even harmful in another situation. Worthless words, what Paul's talking about here, are useless for building people up. So it could be the same word, but in this situation, if it doesn't build people up, then it is considered worthless. Okay? Paul forbids us from letting such speech proceed from our mouth. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. It is a command. It, it, we need to stop using worthless words in our speech. We And it's a, a present tense command, so... We need to keep on restraining it. In other words, you keep on putting this restraint over your mouth and not letting those kinds of words come out. Restrain the harmful and worthless speech. And what he's talking about here is each and every word is to be tested. And you say, well, yeah, that, that, you're going overboard there, John. You know, Well, Jesus said, he warned in Matthew 15, 11, that whatever comes out of a person's mouth is what defiles them. Okay, so it's not what you eat that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you, those words. So, weigh what you say. And, you know, you may be thinking, wow, that sounds like an awful lot of work. I mean, everything I'm going to say, I have to weigh that? Yes, but the encouraging thing is, God has given us this ability of habit. Okay, so as you work on it, it'll become habit. So that you, you don't have to think about every single word that you're going to say. Because over time, it becomes a godly habit. You see, and what is habitual in it is your heart's desire. You see, so over time, and think about it. Um, <clears throat> when you were first saved... There were probably things that you may have had, you know, struggles with, you know, filthy words or just hateful words or, you know, talking about, you know, meaningless stuff or whatever. You had to start thinking about what you're saying, right? And, and so because, you know, your habit was you open your mouth and junk comes out. And so you, you had to work on that. Well, we still have to work on it. And it's not just so that we are here first putting off or preventing the harmful stuff. But thinking in a way, you see, it's, it's a habit of our heart where what we're doing is that, okay, my habit is I want to help. 
And so when I open my mouth, I want to have this habit to where I'm thinking in terms of what's going to be helpful here. And it becomes habit, just like, you know, driving your car or tying your shoe or riding a bike. You get to a point where you're not even thinking about it because it has now become your habit. You see, and that's what we're working toward. I'm not saying for the rest of your life you've got to weigh every single word. Okay, I'm going to say this sentence that has seven words in it. And each, I'm not saying that. You see, because your heart changes. So that if you want to say things that are helpful, that's the kind of thing that's going to come out of your mouth. Okay? Second. Replace it with speech that builds up others. Replace that harmful and unproductive speech with speech that builds up others. You see, it's not enough to just put off harmful speech. That was That's what was wrong or one of the things wrong with that saying, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, because it doesn't go far enough. The Bible says that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and actually everybody's held to this standard, but he's talking to believers, speaking often is necessary. Sometimes silence is the right thing. And that is sometimes the godly thing to do with your speech is just zip it. Sometimes that's the right thing. But sometimes you should speak. Okay? And it's it's not okay. You know, sometimes, eh, you know, I, this this might not go well, so, you know, or they, they're not going to like me if I correct them, or, you know, these kinds of things. And the Bible says you need to speak up in certain situations. And... And so we, we may need to speak. And so what Paul tells us here is put on godly speech. So you put off the ungodly speech and you put on godly speech. Remember, it's, it's like the clothing. You see, you take off that robe that you used to wear, that coat you used to wear that was ungodly speech. You, you put that off and keep it off. And you put on in its place the robe or coat of, of godly speech. So what is godly speech? Well, Paul provides three tests to help us discern what words are suitable. And again, it's not like dictionary words. I'm not talking about that, but using it in the right situation, okay? Test number one. Godly speech is beneficial for building up others. Godly speech is beneficial for building up others. Again, here in verse 29. Let, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but, and here's the put on, only such a word as is good for edification. So he, he describes it here as good, and by good he means beneficial. Okay, it's going to benefit someone. It's not just good in the sense of it's, you know, intrinsically beautiful or something. It's, it's good because it's beneficial. And what is it beneficial for? It's beneficial for edification, for building up. For building up the hearer. Paul has already used this word edification several times. Chapter 2. And then we've seen it, we've seen it several times in chapter 4. And he's talking about building up the body of Christ. Okay? And that's the same idea he has here. But what he's doing is he's focusing on the individual doing the speaking. Okay? So, I need to be thinking not just as, okay, am I serving the body of Christ? Which is the way he's used it before. Building up. But. What about my, my, me speaking? Is that, am I building up? Okay. Am I building up my hearer? Now, <clears throat> I do want to say, because 
it's easy for for Christians to hear a sermon like this and take away the, the wrong idea or take away more than is really intended. This doesn't mean that everything you say has to be profound, right? Some people feel that way, uh, that every word has to be profound, you know, and, and they, they struggle and wrestle with this and, and you know, and their, their speech is just really heavy. And, you know, and it's hard sometimes listening to somebody like that. And if you feel now, okay, well, I've got to respond that way. Not heavy. Okay? It doesn't have to, everything doesn't have to be profound per se. And it doesn't mean that you need to preach a sermon every time you open your mouth. Um, think in terms of um, correction. So if you're correcting a brother or sister in Christ, if you're correcting your child, you know, I know as parents that that's a temptation for us, right? That, you know, as Lloyd-Jones warns us against sermonizing, you know, so you go to correct your child and what do you do for the next hour? You lecture them, okay? And really the better thing would be to say, okay, let me pick out a handful of and a really small handful of helpful words to correct. It might even be one sentence, right? To correct. Do you understand? If they don't understand, now you can elaborate, right? So... Lloyd-Jones, he even warns us against this sermonizing. Think in these terms. A kind word can encourage. It doesn't have to be a sermon. Humor can brighten a heavy heart. The point is, is your speech typically helpful? The things that you say, have you are you developing a habit so that when you do talk, it's helpful? Okay, so so maybe it is something you say to cheer someone that's sad, or to encourage someone, sometimes to correct. Is it typically helpful? Okay, so that's test number one. Godly speech is beneficial for building up others. Verse twenty nine again. This word is good for edification according to the need, uh, and the translators here supply of the moment, but it's not in Greek, according to the need. So, test number two, godly speech fits the occasion. Godly speech fits the occasion. So, you choose your words according to the need. Solomon taught in Proverbs 25.11, like apples of gold... In settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So according to the need, need here is talking about in this situation, something essential is missing. So what you're to do in your words is to supply what's lacking. How do you do that? You choose speech according to that need. Do they need encouragement? Do they need correction? Do they need comfort? Do they need instruction? Okay. So what we what we are to do is think about what is the need and then make our words match that need. If somebody needs encouragement or comfort, correction might not be the right thing right now. Okay. And so maybe correction is needed, but not right now. Okay. See, so we need we need to focus on. Okay, they need to be encouraged first, and then we correct. Maybe later. 
and Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he explained about this phrase according to the need. He said, it means that I must consider the people to whom I'm speaking. I must make an assessment of them. And my speech and conversation must be appropriate for them. You see the idea? I need to match my words to their need. Again, another uh, sobering thought from Jesus. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus warned that we will be held accountable for our words. Verse 29 again, going on, the last phrase. So a word that's good for edification according to the need, that it may give grace to those who hear. So our third test is this. Godly speech gives grace to the hearer. So godly speech is beneficial for building up others. It fits the occasion. And now it gives grace to the hearer. This is our purpose in this. This is what we hope to accomplish here. Again, that idea of habit. Our speech becomes purposeful. Okay? I'm not saying you you can never small talk. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But um, our speech generally has to be purposeful. You know, I know it's easy for us sometimes to just open our mouth and just let it roll. You know, and usually that's the worst thing, right? And be purposeful with what we say. Think about what you're going to say. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, you take an hour to weigh it and all that. But you can have a grid. Like, is this really helpful? Do I need to say this? Sometimes, you know, I'll find myself, you know, heading down a certain path with what I'm saying. And, you know, as I'm kind of weighing it, I'm like, you know, I need to cut this off right here. And, okay. Let's go another direction because it wasn't really helpful. Okay. Grace here, giving grace. You know, grace is unmerited favor. It also has this idea of enablement. So we ask the Lord, Lord, give me grace to be able to bear up under this trial. What are we saying? Give me the enablement to bear up under this. So that's the idea here is that of enablement. It's like the application of a sermon. Does it provide practical help? And here's some examples. Do your words encourage the discouraged? Do they cheer the sad? Do they comfort the grieving? Do they motivate the complacent? Do they correct the unruly? We also need to think about how our words are going to affect the hearer. Consider with me what what Solomon said in Proverbs 12, 18. The first part of that. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. So it's like, you know, your your words as they're coming out, it's like you have a sword and you're, you're, you know, you're jabbing. You're stabbing. You're, 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 you know, creating wounds is the point he's making. And and so he's obviously warning against that. And I thought about this too. <clears throat> Are your words a Trojan horse? You know, you, we say sometimes it's an insult wrapped in a, you know, saying compliment, right? An insult wrapped in a compliment, okay? Or we sometimes call those a backhanded compliment. It's something like this. You know, the few times that you show up, you're really helpful. 
Okay, well, if that's said to you, that's kind of like, ouch, right? But we do that, don't we, sometimes? And I think why we often do that is we're trying to be the Holy Spirit. We're impatient. He's not working fast enough to convict this person, the other person, right? And so we have to help him. I mean, we do that, right? We, we think that we're the Holy Spirit sometimes. You know, well, he's not working fast enough, so I need to say something to convict this, this person. Or I need to keep them humble. You know, so I don't... Okay, they were really helpful this time they showed up. And if I just say, wow, you were really helpful, I don't want them to think that everything's fine. I want to keep them humble. And so I'll say, well, you know, when you do show up, right, we keep them humble. Sometimes we feel like we, there's a need for us to add some barbs to our words. And, you know, give the flower without thorns, right? If, if it's appropriate to encourage someone, then just encourage them. You know, don't go and find the rose that's got the most thorns on it, right? Say something that's helpful, constructive. If it needs to be correction, it needs to be correction. But that those are not sneaky. They shouldn't be sneaky thorns where they don't see the thorns and they grab it and it's ouch. Okay. The correction should be obvious and clear and gracious. You want your words to give grace. And Solomon continues that proverb there in Proverbs twelve eighteen. The contrast to the one that, that thrusts with a sword creating wounds. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. So he's contrasting here a foolish person who's, who's stabbing with their words and the person who's healing wounds with their words. That's what we should be doing. Healing wounds with our words rather than creating wounds. Consider your audience. What grace do they need? What will benefit them? Jesus did give grace in rebukes and correction. But that's not all he did. You know, it's interesting how, how people, and we see it a lot today, where it's like the, the, these two, and we were talking this morning about these two ditches. You know, it's like we always just go from one ditch to the other. You know, we, 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 you know the, the path is not even trodden, you know. And, and so we go from, okay, well, it's just, you know, all nice, if you will. Don't, don't ever say anything that might hurt someone's feelings. Um, and then there's the other where the only thing you ever say is the ouch, you know, the correction. You know, and it's almost like some people see that all Jesus did is, is walk around with a whip, you know. Uh, other people, they see, well, all he did is just walk around, you know, just, you know, blessing people kind of, you know, thing. You know, it, it's, there's, it, and, and both of those are misrepresentations of who Jesus is and, and, and who he was when he was on earth. Because he did more than just one or the other. He he did give grace in correction and rebuke, but he also used gracious words to give hope. Uh, turn with me to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4, and I'll show you what I mean. So we've talked, in, especially in our section on uh, sessions on anger, uh, about 
when Jesus did, out of his anger, correct and rebuke. But he also gave hope. Luke 4, verses 16 to 22, I want to read those. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are trodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. They needed to hear that Messiah had come. They needed hope. They needed to know that the long-awaited Messiah has come. And for his, his first, his, his advent, first coming, there's no more waiting. It's not going to be another thousand, two thousand, three thousand years. It has come. And he said, he was telling them, basically, the Messiah has come. And I'm the Messiah. He gave them hope. You see, so yes, he corrected when he needed to. He rebuked when he needed to. But he gave, he he had these gracious words based on what people needed to hear. So whether correction or comfort, he gave grace. Now, we saw back in verse 25, as I said earlier, that the first test, if you will, of our words needs to be that they have to be true, right? They have to be truthful, But there's more that we've just learned now that goes with that for us to test. There's three more tests for what you say. And you can see on the slide, there there are four tests. You could probably have more, but these are the ones that we're focusing on from Ephesians 4. It has to be true. But your words must be useful for improvement, for building up. They need to fit the need. They must fit the need. And they must provide real help. Okay, so I, I told you I'd talk about small talk. Uh, again, we can come away from a sermon like this and think that, you know, I, I shouldn't walk in the door of the church and say something about the weather. Uh, uh, you know, that's small talk. And, and that's... No, small talk has its place because what we're talking about here is, is it useful? Because small talk can be useful to initiate a conversation. Uh, And I was telling Connie about this. I remembered uh, a church that we used to go to uh, years ago. Uh, Our very first time there, uh, this uh, dear lady uh, came up to us and first thing out of her mouth was, do you believe in the doctrines of grace? And, you know, you know, it's like, well, fortunately, I knew what she was talking about. And yes, I already, you know, did believe in the doctrines of grace. That is God's sovereign grace. <clears throat> but I thought that was kind of odd for that to be the first thing out of her mind. And she hadn't even met us yet. Didn't even know her name yet. 
you know. And dear sweet lady, um, but small talk would have been a you know for I mean. You know, I was eager to have have that conversation, you know, with them. Um, so I was okay, but most people would probably be put off by that. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about, and, you know, nice to meet you too, you know. <clears throat> but it can, so it can be useful to initiate a conversation. It can be useful to disarm an, an awkward situation. Uh, sometimes just, you know, again, kind of easing into it. There's nothing wrong with small talk in that. Or to as a bridge to get to know someone. Okay, so you, you ask them, okay, well, so what do you do? Are you from around here? Things like Those are useful questions. They're not deep spiritual questions with deep spiritual answers. But it's a bridge to, to as you're working to get to know them. And maybe in that conversation, maybe in another conversation later, you go a little deeper. So, you know, you may have, may ask them, okay, so what church tradition did you grow up with, you know, grow up in, and that kind of thing. And you get a little deeper and deeper. But, again, small talk shouldn't be your only kind of speech. Okay? If if you, you look at your, your, you know, as you go... You know, think about your day. It's like, you know, I only only had small talk today, and it wasn't really purposeful. I'm trying to get to know somebody. It's just a matter of, I really wasn't even thinking. I just, okay, well, then work at being more purposeful. Like, okay, was there something more more helpful that I could have shared with that person? Um, I, I saw that they looked a little discouraged. Could I have encouraged them instead of just talking about the weather, right? Also, think about why you're about to speak. You know, why are you about to speak when you're getting ready to say something? Is it just because you like to talk? Some people do. Uh, You wouldn't know it. I don't really like to talk. I like to just sit in the corner and read a book, you know. But... So this, you know, preaching thing has been a growing experience for me, you know, and kind of get me out there a little bit. But um, some people do like, are you just talking because you like to talk? Okay, well, think about being more purposeful. Um, Listen more, that sort of thing. When you're getting ready to say something, are you planning to criticize and tear down? Okay, then stop yourself. Put that guard over and say, okay, let me think about that. Can I say that in a different way instead of, you know, just cutting them down? Can I say it in a way that's maybe more encouraging um, and helpful? Are you talking because you want people to think well of you, to know how much you know? Weigh what you say. Okay, now back to our main points. The third main point, after those three tests, which are part of point two. Point number three, put off worthless speech to avoid grieving God's Spirit. Well, we already did put off, John. Why are we coming back to it? Well, I'll tell you that in here in a sec. Put off worthless speech to avoid grieving God's Spirit. Look at verse 30 now. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, this verse often throws people. And they're kind of like, well, what do I make of this? I, I'm not really sure. He just kind of just, you know, it's one of those little random thoughts Paul had. 
you know, so he's he's dictating this letter and he just has a random thought. Is that what this is? And some people say, well, maybe this is another put off, put on, but there's no put on there. It's just a put off. And well, that's solved easily by the very first word in the verse. And he's tying it to verse 29. So verse 30 is actually part two of the put off. So he does put off no unwholesome speech, right? Put on that which is helpful. And now put off number two. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you see, when he's talking about grieving the Holy Spirit here, it has to do with our speech. What he's saying with this command, stop grieving the Holy Spirit when you use your worthless words. Stop grieving Him. In other words, stop stop with those words because you grieve Him. You see, He is holy, so unholy words grieve Him. He is the Spirit who indwells us. So when we harm others with our words, it grieves Him. He is God. So words which don't match His character, they grieve Him. And something very important that we glean from this in our systematic theology. Okay, if if the Holy Spirit can grieve, can sorrow, what does that say about Him? And I'm kind of giving it away by using the pronoun him and not it. Is the Holy Spirit just a force, kind of Star Wars-like? An inanimate something? No. The Holy Spirit is a person. Only persons grieve. Okay, a force doesn't grieve. It can't. The Holy Spirit is a person. And what's fascinating is, uh, this often gets overlooked, but the Old Testament even considers the Holy Spirit a person. Uh, when Israel rebelled against God, Isaiah 63.10 says, they grieved His Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so even there, it, we don't have to wait to the New Testament to know. Now, I know they had trouble understanding that because, you know, the Lord is one God, okay? They had a hard time, okay, what do we do with, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? And, and the New Testament helps us with that, but it's there. Worthless words grieve God's Spirit. Now, you may wonder, okay, got that. But why does he talk about the sealing of the Spirit and the day of redemption here? What does that have to do with any of this that we're talking about? Okay, let's talk about sealing. When you trusted in Jesus, God sealed you with His Holy Spirit. And we we looked at this earlier in chapter 1, where we look back into ancient times, and so different things, like a letter, for example. Remember, they wrote their letters on parchment or something. They would, a scroll, and they roll it up, and then they would seal it and then send it off, okay? In other words, it showed that this is from me. You know, I'm the one, I own this letter, I sealed it with my seal, I'm sending it to you, and you know it came from me, right? So, you were not sealed with wax, you were sealed with God's Spirit, That seal shows that you belong to God. That's the one thing we brought out there in chapter 1. The seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit applied to you shows that you belong to God. You and I do. But it also, as some seals, like when they would seal the tomb, uh, it was to keep it secure. You're also kept secure. So the Holy Spirit not only marks you out that you belong to God, 
but also you are being kept secure, as he says here, unto the day of redemption. That is, until that day. You're being kept secure because in that day you won't need security because you'll be with God forever and ever. By nature, you'll be secure. What does he mean by this idea of redemption in the day of redemption? Again, when you were saved, not only were you sealed, but you were redeemed. Okay, we talked about that too earlier. But we have to think about redemption. There's there's two aspects of it, and the second aspect is what he brings out here. So when you were redeemed, when you first put your trust in Christ and you were redeemed, you were redeemed from the power and penalty of sin. There will be a day coming, praise the Lord, when we will be redeemed from the presence of sin. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. So all of us, as we struggle and fight against sin, even though we are saved, one day that won't be a problem. That won't be a struggle. There will be no more fight. How wonderful that will be. And think about how we can have conversations with each other in heaven and know that we're not ever going to get into a tiff. We're not ever going to have, you know, you know, these where we're sinning against each other because we won't be able to. We won't want to. We'll be redeemed from the presence of sin. And that will be in the day of redemption, which is the day of the Lord, that great day when we are with our Savior Jesus. So. Do your words portray that you are redeemed, that you've been redeemed? Or do they betray that you have not? Do your words portray that God's Spirit has sealed you? Or do they betray that He has not? Your mouth exposes whether the Holy Spirit lives in you, transforming your heart. You may say, John, I'm sure I'm a Christian. Yeah. And just like here, he says, stop. Stop speaking with those kinds of words. Put on the kind that you must, the ones that are helpful. Right? And so it's not just whether you say it. Are you growing? Are you working on it? Is the Spirit of God convicting you through this, this text of Scripture, to do something about it? Jesus explained this for us. He said, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Matthew twelve thirty five. What do your words expose about you? As we read earlier in James three, has your tongue been on, been set on fire by hell? Those are those are sobering words, right? There in James three. Is your, is your tongue sometimes set on fire by hell? Or, like Jesus, does grace drip from your lips? The Luke 4 passage. Does grace drip from your lips? Well, as we come to the Lord's table, let's think about in Jesus' words in those final hours. Those final hours from 
where he washed the disciples' feet all the way up until his death. That was the time of his greatest suffering. And as, as Kevin oftentimes uses this illustration of, of the sponge. So if you are the sponge and you're squeezed by trials and suffering, what comes out? You know, a lot of times it's really yucky, you know, dishwater, right? That comes out of us. Jesus was squeezed more than any of us ever were and more than at any time in his life. What came out? Crystal clear, pure water. He gave grace. And let's just think for a minute about some of the grace He gave in those final hours. From John 13 through 17, He spoke to prepare His disciples for His absence and He prayed for them. When He stood before Pilate, He challenged the leader, what is truth? But he also used silence to get his point across. He gave comfort and hope to that one thief on the cross next to him. This day you'll be with me. He spoke words of care to his mother, woman, and then pointing to John, your son. In other words, John, you take care of her. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And then hope to sinners. His last words. It's finished. He gave grace. In that darkest hour, that most painful hour, He gave grace. Grace. 